This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a break from the brain and focus on the face. So a central, if in fact not the central question in modern biology is to understand the genotype to phenotype connection. In other words, how does information encoded by the genome reveals itself through the developmental process to produce specific phenotypes? And the flip side to this question is to understand how variation between the genome during evolution produces phenotypic variation either between species or between individuals within the same species, and how, uh, how come uh, such common genetic variants can determine disease susceptibility uh, in complex human diseases. I'm sure most of you heard by now that most complex disease and trade-associated variants map to the non-coding parts of the genome. So not to, to, to our genes per se, the protein coding parts of the genome, but to the vast non-coding space that comprises uh, over 98% of, of the genome. Moreover, evidence begins to emerge that these variants are enriched within cis-regulatory elements, but, and especially within a specific class of regulatory elements called enhancers. So these are modular genetic sequences that can activate gene expression at large distances and are typically specialized to activate gene expression in a specific tissue context. And the idea here is that these genetic variants or single nucleotide polymorphisms within enhancers can produce either weak or strong enhancer alleles which in turn can lead to quantitative differences in gene expression and influence uh, downstream traits. We learned from the EvoDivo community working on, on model organisms that studying this regulatory landscape evolution of closely related species can be an extremely powerful tool in uncovering genotype to phenotype connections. So, for example, elegant work from, from Sean Carroll, David Kingsley, and others unequivocally de demonstrated that change in enhancer sequence can dictate change in phenotypes such as wing patterning in Drosophila or skeletal changes in stickleback fish. And we were very interested in extending this type of evodivo thinking into humans and, and other primates. But, of course, as it's already been mentioned some of the key developmentally and evolutionary uh, important cell types cannot be studied directly in embryonic context from humans and other grape apes for, for, obvious, ethical uh, for obvious ethical reasons. But it has already been introduced that now with induced pluripotent stem cell models, we can study cellular and molecular mechanisms underlying phenotypic divergence in higher primates. And a few years back, we referred to this general strategy as cellular anthropology. So one of the phenotypes that we are uh, most interested in is, is human face and also human craniofacial development. We know that craniofacial variation both within and between species is largely genetically encoded. 
So we have unique facial features that are distinct from, from those of uh, other grape apes, but also there is a lot of individual variation in facial form, both within the humans, but also in our close uh, evolutionary relatives. So the question is, what are the cellular origins of facial variation? Well, it turns out that most of our face and head is derived from the single cell type called cranial neural crest cells. These are very unique cells that, that form early in the stations at three to five weeks. They're induced in dorsal anterior part of the neural tube, and then they migrate long distances. And their destination, they can differentiate to a large variety of cell types, including bone, cartilage, connective tissue, cranial nerve, and, and pigment cells. And as a result, in fact, most of the craniofacial complex is derived from the neural crest. Moreover, seminal work from Nicole Ledron-Ren and, and, and others showed uh, through cross-species transplantation experiments in avian embryos that these cells autonomously carry much of the information on species-specific facial morphology. So these cells are important, but how can we access them uh, from humans and, and other primates? Uh, as you already pro probably realize, this, this is a tricky proposition. So this is transient embryonic cell types forming at three to five weeks of gestation. We cannot access them directly from the embryo, but thanks to the IPS and uh, ES technologies, we can derive them in vitro. And indeed, that's what my lab has, has done over the last several years, established protocols to obtain uh, in vitro cells with bona fide characteristics of the cranial neural crest cells. More recently, Sarah Prescott, a, a former graduate student in the lab working in collaboration with Rusty Gage, uh, extended this model to, to a chimpanzee. And here really were a few key features were to, to reduce heterogeneity of the population and properly stage human and, and uh, chimp cells. Because unless uh, you do that, the developmental differences are going to dominate over species differences. And moreover, we also went to great lengths to ensure that not only molecular uh, signatures, but also cellular properties of these cells uh, represent bona fide neural crest cells. So for example, we can transplant these cells to the chick embryo neural tube, and they will engraft, migrate, and, and assume correct positional identities in the embryo. And they also retain this very broad differentiation potential characteristic of the crest. So now with this model uh, in hand, we used epigenomic strategy to systematically annotate regulatory elements. So just to give you uh, an idea for those of you who are not uh, so familiar with epigenomics, um, when active, enhancers share certain common chromatin features. And when we can use technology like ChIP-seq or ATAC-seq to map these features genome-wide in, in an unbiased manner in a specific cell type. Uh, and then we can correlate these changes in epigenomic patterns uh, with changes in gene expression uh, uh, determined by, by RNA-seq. So to do this, uh, Sarah took um, neural crest cells, in vitro derived neural crest cells from, from uh, multiple independent uh, chimp and human individuals and performed mapping of transcription factors and general co-activators uh, analysis of hypersensitivity by ataxic and also analyze certain ke uh, chemical tags or histone modifications that are present on nucleosomes uh, when regulatory elements are active. And based on the simple chromatin signatures, she was able to map 
enhancers that are active in the neural crest cells and also distinguish them from other classes of regulatory elements such as promoters and then ultimately link to, the, to, to differences in gene expression. One thing I really need to mention is that not only we can map these regulatory elements, but that quantitative comparisons of chromatin signatures at these elements can be used to infer differences in their activity. So it's not only where these enhancers are, but we can compare uh, quantitatively these this, uh, tags, chromatin signatures, to infer how different they are in their activity between the species. So this forms the basis of what I refer to as comparative epigenomics. And the idea here is, is simple, that we're comparing the same cell type between two closely related species. So most of these epigenomic patterns that, that we recover should be invariant between the two species. But the idea is also that we will be able to see some differences, or quantitative differences in, in, in those chemical tags that mark active chromatin, which uh, will be indicative of the difference in, in regulatory activity, which then hopefully will also be able to link in, to differences in gene expression. So that's the idea, how does the actual data look like? Well, indeed, most of the epigenomic patterns are invariant between human and chimp. But we also see at a subset of small, smaller subset of regions, we see differences. As indicated here in this um, uh, chimp biased region or indicated here at this human biased enhancer region. So we can quantify then these differences across the whole genome and compare different individuals of the same species, so different humans or different chimps, and that variation is shown here in red, or we can compare between the species, between human and chimp. And as you can see, there's more variation between the species, uh, shown here in, in blue, uh, than, than within the species, and we'll refer to those falling outside as either human-biased or chimp-biased candidate enhancer regions. Importantly, we can uh, associate these regulatory changes with changes in gene expression. So in other words, genes near human-biased enhancers tend to be human-biased in expression, and those near chimp-biased enhancers are chimp-biased in expression. And that's, of course, important because it's gene expression difference that ultimately matters uh, for exerting phenotypic differences. Moreover, these are not just some random genes, but in fact, when we do ontology annotation for these biased genes, we see that they're associated with development and malformation of various craniofacial structures, uh, including those structures that are actually quite divergent between human and chip. But now an important question to ask is where do these interspecies differences in enhancer signatures come from? Are they due to differences in the transregulatory environments of the human and, and chimp neural crest, so different in transcription factor networks, things like that? Or are they due to differences in enhancer sequence itself, so cis-regulatory changes? And to distinguish between these two possibilities, we designed the following assay. We synthesized a library of autologous regions that were either human-biased, chimp-biased or invariant in our epigenomic data. 
And then we clone this library to a so-called self-transcribing enhancer reporter vector, uh, forming a basis of the Starseq assay described a few years back by Alex Stark's lab, and which relies on the ability of enhancer to activate its own expression at a distance and then drive its own expression and serve as its own barcode. And we took this library and introduced it to either chimp or human neural crest cells. From this, we learned two important things. First of all, bias in, in uh, uh, epigenomic signature translates into the bias in ability of these sequences to drive gene expression. In other words, what we predicted as human biased, which you should be seeing here, was human biased, and what we predicted as chimp biased was chimp bias in general in ability to drive uh, gene expression. And the second important conclusion was that direction of the bias was the same, whether we tested our library in the context of the human or of the human or chimp neural crest cells. And what this tells us is that the bias is encoded by the sequence of enhancers themselves rather than imposed by the differences in transregulatory environments. So if it's in the sequence and, and the transregulatory environments are more conserved, we can go as far as to the transregulatory environment of the mouse to gain some insight where, uh, when and where during development these enhancers may be active. And here I'm showing a couple of examples of this where we're looking at the human bias <laughs> Uh, enhancer and we're cloning autologous sequence from either human on ch uh, or chimp to the LAGZI enhancer reporter vector and testing in the context of the mouse embryo. And why there is a shared expression in the olfactory placode, there is a human uh, associated uh, gain in multiple, uh, uh, in multiple domains within the head and face. And here is another example, again, a human biased enhancer. This one is more pan-neural crest. And again, you see the gain of activity uh, for the human sequence. And this one is actually quite blazing in, in, in the face, whereas the chimp, corresponding chimp sequence is not active. So this is interesting because it shows that we can systematically identify enhancers that change their regulatory activity uh, during recent human evolution, and we can even learn something about their spatial-temporal activity during development. But what this type of work will not tell us is whether these enhancers are actually responsible for driving variation in, in facial morphology. And while we can model some of these aspects of variation in the mouse, again, mouse is not an ideal system for studying human facial variation. So to try addressing these questions, uh, we thought about harnessing glorious normal range human facial variation, which, which you, can, you can see just looking around those, uh, this room, and our ability to non-invasively and quite precisely quantify it. And to do this, we teamed up with a group of anthropologists, uh, engineers, and, and uh, human geneticists uh, who developed a very novel methodology for unbiased facial phenotyping. And I just want to uh, mention at least three names, Peter Klaas, Mark Shriver, and Seth Weinberg. And what, what Peter has done is develop this very precise method to quantify facial shape, uh, which relies on 3D facial scans uh, that are then uh, mirror imaged uh, and then remapped into the mesh, dense mesh uh, of 10,000 coordinates. 
So essentially, in other words, each phase is translated into 10,000 coordinates. Then average to remove deviations from bilateral symmetry and then aligned across many, many participants in the study to establish correspondence of these 10,000 coordinates. And this allows for, for unbiased facial phenotyping and quantifying shape variation over global to local facial segments, starting from very global effects on, on, on facial variation to effects on very specific aspects of the facial shape, as highlighted here in yellow. And this type of analysis has been done on many, many participants, uh, over 2,000 participants and replicated uh, independ on an independent cohort of another 2,000 participants. And uh, having genotype information for, uh, for this participant allowed us to perform genome-wide association studies to identify candidate variants that may be associated with different aspects of facial variation. While I don't have time to go into the details of, of that study, I just want to show you one example that I think is, is really quite interesting. So there is an example of, of one subgenetic variant, the lead SNP on chromosome 2, that will link to variation in lower face morphology, uh, particularly the jaw shape. So when we look at uh, underneath this SNP at our epigenomic data, we see that it falls smack in the middle of an active neural crest enhancer. But what is really interesting about it is that the same enhancer is actually chimp-biased in activity. Moreover, the very same SNP was associated by another group earlier this year with susceptibility to non-syndromic cleft lip and palate in Europeans, as shown here. So we're really quite ex excited by examples like that because what this suggests that perhaps overlapping set of regulatory elements can influence variation in multiple levels both between the species, within the species, and then when combined uh, with, uh, with either environmental perturbation or other variants uh, influencing disease susceptibility in common disease like cleft lip palate. So we're starting to think that it's going to be about the quantitative differences and about the combinatorial effect which really will ultimately separate those three scenarios, the differences between within species and disease states. And with this thought, I'm going to leave you and thank uh, people involved. Um, in particular, Sarah Prescott, uh, who now moved on to Harvard as, as a postdoc, was an extremely talented and open-minded graduate student who took on and started all the evolutionary projects in, in my lab. I want to acknowledge Tomek for uh, most of the genomic data analysis that I've shown you today and, and really thinking about how we can quantitatively compare human and chimp uh, epigenomic data. Uh, I'm also grateful to, to Rusty and Carol Martretto, about whom you already heard today, uh, for really sharing with us chimp iPS cells very early in the game. Uh, our mouse genetics collaborator, Licia Celeri, uh, and also a human phenotyping and GWAS team, Peter Klaas, Seth Weinberg, and Mark Shriver. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.